Welcome to the Blockdown Podcast, brought to you by EOK Digital, the number one blockchain PR and communications agency. Every week, we're sharing pearls of wisdom about the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast so we can bring you even more great content. Okay, and we are back. Um, Welcome to Gav, and uh, I hope you're well. Uh, I see, uh, and um, I I just want to say first, uh, how did my the thing I really really want to know is how did Snowden inspire your own work? And um, I know you've spoke you you've written about this, and I I think that there is some really really extremely, I, I'm just so compelled and curious to know that if there was some cross-pollination in terms of, you know, inspiring your work, Gav, and here we sit on the pre- precipice of Web3 and a more optimistic avenue toward, you know, frameworks for governance. And I just, I just, I really want to know, like, how did that, how did, how were you inspired? And then, um, Ed, if you can speak to, you know, some of your thoughts about, you know, is this an optimistic um, avenue and what is what are you optimistic about? Uh, if we can go uh, on that, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, first, thanks for inviting me on. Um, it's lovely to be here and have the chance to actually uh, interact um, uh, directly for a little while. Um, yeah. The first, uh, I mean, you know, I, I did I did write this article in Web three, like um, you know, back in twenty fourteen, and actually. If you go back to the article, I have it up here now. It's, uh, I think that like the third paragraph of the article uh, actually mm. calls it the post Snowden web, right? Um, this was mm-hmm. this was very, um, um, it was it was a bit of a, a you, uh, kind of like a, a revelation at the time. I remember it's like April, March, April time, um, and somehow the the two had been separate. The whole Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, you know, the whole sort of blockchain crypto movement had been um, had been interesting, but it was one um, different uh, uh, sort of uh, box in my mind and life, um, rather separate to this. You know, this sort of uh, the revelations that um, that were very helpfully uh, um, uh, published. Um, you know, back in uh, back in twenty thirteen, I think. Um, I know there was this revelation moment where I realized that. This wasn't the you whole know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, this consensus technology wasn't just uh, a kind of uh, a reaction to, to the, uh, you know, to the incompetence of, of the regulators and bankers uh, in 2008. Um, but it was really a, a wholly different um, approach to interhuman uh, interaction on a global level um, that addressed or that could address many of the um, of the issues that had come to light uh, in a very uh, uh, dramatic way with the with 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 uh, you know these revelations, and I saw it as being um, very clearly a piece of technology that could really um, really help society move away from these uh, these really sort of fundamental issues of uh, of trust, and so this sort of concept of this platform. That could move society in this direction um, uh, and addressed some of these issues, um, at least, 
was uh, I felt deserved a different name to crypto and to blockchain because it sort of brought in a few other things as well. It brought in elements of like BitTorrent and Freenet and Tor, right? There was, it wasn't simply about um, the ability to have free, uh, a free currency of the internet. This was about creating a whole new platform to um, eclipse the sort of traditional technologies that we'd used that were very um, authority based. And, uh, and so it, it sort of deserved to be called something quite different. And then it was like, what do they call it? You know, well, it's the next, it's the next iteration of, um, of this like massively multi-user application framework that we kind of call web two. Um, so it kind of web three. Um, and then it was also like, well, maybe it should be sort of named after the guy that sort of really shone a light on this and demonstrated that society really, really needs this technology. So, you know, I was kind of in two minds, um, post Snowden web, web three, web three caught on. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, particularly that you mentioned the influences from um, sort of the prior works of the internet, the BitTorrent type uh, distribution. Um, because I, I think back to uh, the classical tradition, uh, the, the idea of the great conversation uh, that unites us over generations um, with the thinkers of the past. And each time as we think, uh, what is the way forward to the better world? Uh, we take what we have. We take what's been gifted to us by, by posterity and prior work of our, our fellows. Uh, and then we try to challenge it or we try to extend it and we try to go beyond it. Uh, and when you ask me if I'm optimistic, uh, this is why I'm optimistic. Um, we had this beautiful thing um, in the internet that was uh, given to us, and not given to all of us, some of you are old enough that you, you helped build it, right? Uh, but there, uh, there is a countervailing force uh, that has taken the internet to exploit it. Uh, they have accepted it as a gift to themselves, to the exclusion of everyone else. And I'm thinking of powerful central forces here, whether they are governmental or whether they are corporate. And we actually see this, I, I think, beginning to distort uh, the blockchain space uh, quite clearly. I think all of you are, are much more familiar with it than I am, uh, where we see a lot of projects uh, that are being um, sort of manipulated or contorted or shaped or reshaped to be uh, as politely as possible, much more fair uh, to the investors of the project than they are to the public in general. Um, and I, I think that's a corruption of, to the ideals uh, of the space, the framework of what it should be, what it could be, uh, and what, in my opinion, and ultimately, actually, uh, my belief, it will be. And, and that's because you've got all of these projects, um, some of which are very uh, cleverly self-serving, some of them are very transparently self-serving. And on the other side, uh, you have uh, more publicly serving alternatives. I think over time, over iterations, um, the common interest will win over uh, the selfish interest. Uh, there is some benefit to selfish interest, right? We need to uh, basically allow people uh, the space to try and be self-serving, to try and get ahead, because that incentive drives a lot of creative urges and uh, a lot of people to do work that they would not otherwise perform uh, unless they had this big carrot dangling ahead of them. 
Um, but in the internet space, in the blockchain um, space, what we have seen, I think, uh, is people not trying to uh, simply chase the carrot or a carrot, but all carrots. Uh, and in so doing, they're, they're claiming them for themselves to the exclusion of everyone else. Uh, this is the same when we look at the internet broadly. Uh, what Facebook is doing uh, is trying to basically take every carrot in the world uh, and lock it in a Facebook box, an Instagram box, a WhatsApp box um, that then no one else can interoperate with, uh, no one can access. Uh, and if you want to so much as smell their carrot, right, you have to pay Facebook money. Um, and the funny thing is when you're using Instagram, when you're using Facebook, you're not even in the same room as the carrot. The carrot is exclusively for the advertisers. Uh, because back to that earlier idea uh, that we were talking about violence and influence, um, what Facebook sells is influence, right? It's on that same spectrum. It's the softer side. Um, but what they are trying to do is they're trying to manipulate and shape behavior uh, for rent. Gavin, I, I think that this is a kind of like a, a, a very interesting thing for you to chime in on because there's been uh, for some, uh, perhaps it's arguable that there's been for some L, new L1 entrance, um, and this is for more of our blockchain oriented audience perhaps, um, new L1 entrants that have sacrificed uh, a level of decentralization for some sort of performance. And this is sitting outside of, of, of at your, the, the discussion perhaps of that of that speculative impulse, which is absolutely- <laughs> Yeah, but I'm aware of what you're talking to, about. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't. I'm, I. I wasn't. Yeah. I just for our audience, not for the audience that was. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I'm not offended. <laughs> it's. It's. It's a great question. Okay. 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 Sorry. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, Gavin, if if you could chime in on your thoughts about this, um, I, I think that would be lovely. Yeah. Sure. Um. Well. I think the the bottom line here is that, you know, Bitcoin would not exist if all of the Bitcoin nodes had to sit in the same data center, had to be bought from the same company, uh, and it had to be synced from one of the very few privileged individuals that, uh, that had access to the historical transaction set. Um, the reason that Bitcoin exists today is because you didn't require any fundamental privilege in order to join in and run the network and indeed um, verify that everybody who was running the network was doing it correctly. Um, and the reason that this, 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 like this non-privileged or non-permissioned, um, trustless, open, transparent, whatever you want to call it, decentralized, um, uh, this, this, attribute of the Bitcoin network allowed it to exist um, in this kind of, uh, I, you know, Edward called it, um, you know, un ungovernable. Um, I, I kind of, uh, I like this word illegal, right? It's, it, it kind of like outside of the scope of human law. This is a natural law, right? This is, this is kind of like the laws of the, the, the physical laws, the laws of the universe. You can't take the wind to court for blowing your house down, even though it is damaged. Yeah. <laughs> can't take the wind for yet and, and it's like bitcoin bitcoin was this um this this illegal force right and we 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 created it i say we as humans yeah, through uh you know 
mathematics, basically mathematics, economics, game theory. We, we, we mix these together in this, this crazy recipe. Bitcoin uh, came about and it, it, was, it was a force that could not be, um, could not be stopped. Well, as soon as these forces become stoppable because they are overly centralized, then they will cease to get this kind of carte blanche, ungovernable, illegal um, attribute. And they will become inherently very governable, which basically means in, in um, Edward's earlier terms <laughs> that um, people with sticks may well turn up at doors <laughs> and demand that these nodes uh, stop processing transactions from these uh, individuals um, or, uh, or, or whatever else that they want to do. Um, and if that's, if that's the case, then it, it is effectively it's working against um, the, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, the token holders, the, the participants, the stakeholders in these networks, because it's these networks will cease to be what they are meant to be, right? They will cease to have this value proposition that Bitcoin had, and they will become just like um, another um, form of, uh, of centralized service, not entirely different to, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, whatever. Yes, uh, fair enough and agreed. Ed Edward, do you want to chime in further on that? No, no, I, I think I largely agree with the, uh, the, the proposition there. Um, this is something that I, I would actually extend to uh, one of the debates that I've been writing about recently on my Substack. Um, central bank digital currencies and their entrance into the space uh, where they're trying, they are particularly threatened um, by the presence or existence of stable coins such as they are, right? Uh, particularly when people start talking about like Tether and whatnot, they're like, somebody is creating a dollar equivalent or soaking a dollar out of our ecosystem and then they're replacing it with what? We don't know, you know, whatever. Um, what if we just uh, flood the zone with our own um, competitor? And we see, I think, uh, when we talk about stablecoins, there are these centrally issued stablecoins coming from, you know, Coinbase or wherever uh, that have built into their smart contracts things like, uh, you know, blacklists and uh, freezing capabilities for contracts. Um, and they have the ability to, like, burn other people's addresses. Um, and, and to me, this defeats the idea of what a... DAO or stablecoin is. A stablecoin that has blacklisting, in my opinion, is not a stablecoin. And this is why I would prefer something like a DAI, or I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I've only seen it uh, written, but MakerDAO's thing to die. Um, because that doesn't have that. It is uh, collateralized and openly uh, sort of visible to the network. There is no question about what's backing it because you already see what's there. And, you know, these things can be voted on, they can be adjusted. Uh, and this is kind of a model to me where we see things, something, you know, the government offers, for example, its CBDCs or Coinbase offers its next, you know, thing where Facebook finally comes forward with whatever its thing is. Um, and they're all, all trying to uh, basically wash tokens out of one economy whether that's the dollar economy, whether that's out of, you know, crypto economy or whatever, into their space. And this is a lot of the competition that I think we see in the block chain space today. It's, it's very zero sum. Um, and the, the question that I have to ask is when we start to look at these older models, actually, that are more tested, that are more proven, um, like 
the, the Bitcoin model or, you know, like a um, sort of over collateralized model that's on network and open um, and more free than it is centrally regulated. Um, and then you have a CBDC out there, central bank issued digital currency, where they just say, hey, we just created $10 trillion and we sent them to everybody's uh, you know, bank account. But if you don't use them in a week, they disappear, right? And this is what China is test driving today. Uh, they can give sort of rebates to juice the economy wherever, but your money has an expiration date. Uh, and this gets to the inflation um, controversies that are happening all over the public domain today. People are beginning to ask a question that has been largely forgotten. Um, one of the privileges of government classically has been to spend other people's money. If we stop talking about other people's money and we start talking about your money, and we start not talking about uh, strictly legally authorized taxes that have gone through long debates and you know, uh, are, are just continuously, relentlessly covered by media, and we start talking about more secretive forms of taxation, whether it's being performed by a company, whether it's being performed by a government, who should be able to spend your money other than you? We can create networks that answer that question, um, and I think they will be more competitive than, than ones that are, uh, shall we say, less transparent. Thank you. Um, I think it's worthy then at this point to talk about, you know, what Web 3.0 or excuse me, I've, I've been told that that's uh, Web 3. I should not say Web 3.0 that that was changed at some point in the, in the past. Web 3 will look like in 10 or 20 years. I understand that's an extremely long scope of time um, in our in our world today. Um, but uh, what what do you both think it will look like? And Gav, I'll, I'll, uh, Gavin, excuse me, um, I'll uh, shoot this to you, please. Um, well, yeah, it is a <laughs> it's pretty long, pretty long time scale. Um, I generally deal in like maybe at most um, six months, three years, uh, ten or twenty. I mean. I we're going to see it's going to be a very interesting social experiment because we're going to see just how much um, the world uh, cares about um, privacy, self-sovereignty, uh, transparency, knowing that the rules, their assumptions about how a system or a service works um, are true. And I think this is this actually um, it, it's an interesting uh, it's a slight difference with um, uh, with I think what 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 Edward was saying earlier with uh, you know the stable coins that like USDC whatever versus um, versus like Dai, um, I, I'm not against like stable coins that are centrally issued. I think that there is you know they they are logic right. And at the end of the day, my I consider my job as like a trustless, trust free consensus software guy is to develop systems where the stated rules are enforced. Now, if the stated rules allow a central issuer to freeze an account, well, look, you know, if you don't want to be a part of the system, you go use some other system that doesn't allow a central authority to freeze an account. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's feasible, um, if nothing else, um, to build a world where, um, where only one kind of paradigm can exist. I think um, I think there have to be choices here. And I see this as just like another choice. And although I may not particularly want to use a centrally issued currency myself, um, 
as long as there are like options and choices and as long as the rules so much as they are they can be written in logic uh, can be uh, uh, like guaranteed to be enforced then i think um i i consider that to be like the key contribution of um of the consensus element at least of web3 so like in 10 or 20 years time my hope of, for the world would really be that we that we have these you know global services that we massively multi-user we you know broadly refer to it as the web now um we have these services that provide us with um de facto guarantees like hard guarantees on the on on the rules that are you know open and transparent that we can read whether it's in code whether it's in english um that we can read and get a credible um belief that they will be for uh, they will be followed and that's something that i see is really really missing from the world that this kind of the like pre bitcoin pre blockchain um i suppose if we're doing it properly like pre bit torrent um pre peer to peer world right the world was very much based around um a trusted authority providing a service um it had to be from society to develop to get to the point that it is um but uh in 10 or 20 years it would be my hope that we've moved away from this paradigm and that we're into a paradigm where uh services do not need or service providers do not need to be trusted um we can verify thank you gavin and uh as a rejoinder to that is your proposal then that we would have some people might choose on the shelf of dao's the benevolent dictatorship dao um and 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 and, uh, and, and i just, i i i i think that that's possible i mean some people I think that the basic the concept that you should be able to choose is sound and and should be fundamental. Um yeah. and I, mean, I wonder what you think of experimentation, right? It's it's like the the is the basis of evolution is to have many different mm. paths and the path that uh, you know that delivers the best is fitted best fitted for the environment, delivers the best I don't know, opportunity service, whatever advantageousness to the um uh to, to humanity to society as a whole should be the one ultimately that wins out we've come into a really interesting Thanks. debate here so let me wade back in um because i i think gavin you know makes a important point but i i have to be sort of the dark side here <laughs> uh counter argue uh for the 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 sunshine and roses take because no one comes to me for sunshine and roses um which is uh that's true and it sounds persuasive but uh, you know, antifreeze leaks from a car, and animals drink it. Uh, it's an attractive nuisance, right? There is something that seems better. It is sweeter, so their brain is tricked into believing this is more beneficial. It's easier. It's there. I didn't have to work for it. Let's get it, and they die as a result, right? Uh, it's the same with swimming pools that you know uh, don't have fences around them. Little kids go to them, and you know it's. Uh, these same things happen all over the place economically. This is really what Web two is um, we lost the distributed state of the original web where we were all sort of homesteaders and proprietors. Uh, we had terrible kludgy little websites uh, that you know we, we tapped out in text editors. Uh, they were not beautiful, but they were ours. The servers were you know under our desk or you know whether it's at a university or at your home. Um, and bit by bit, we made the barriers to entry uh, lower. We created a greater uh, 
opportunities for inclusion for people who lacked access to the resources or the computation or the technical know-how um, to do this. But people exploited that imbalance of power, right? Uh, and they constructed what they believed in their heart, truly believed, uh, was a force for good in the world. See, for example, Google's original do no evil. Um, but over time, as it corporatizes, as it iterates within itself, it begins to decay because this is the same with our governments. This is the same that we're seeing today. Uh, the stewardship of a society is a um, constant drain on hours, uh, uh, on uh, sort of psychic energy. Um, you have to constantly be working, getting out of your bed, trying to make things better in a small way just to keep things the same uh, because the forces of entropy are tilting us toward decay uh, and the nature of human nature and corruption uh, tilt us toward that decline. Um, I do think uh, that this distribution and this explosion of choices is likely. Uh, what I am concerned about, will remain concerned about, is the first mover advantage, the network effect, and particularly anti-competitive behavior uh, by market leaders and by those who have a lot of resources. Um, and this is this is just uh, sort of the concern. Uh, what we see, I think, in uh, a lot of these spaces is where regulation or uh, the regulatory authority or a um, advantage of any kind like that, a, an unshared advantage is used to advantage a certain class to the detriment of their competitors, whether we're talking about states versus non-states, uh, whether we're talking about market incumbents versus market entrants, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, startups versus whatever. Um, we all recognize this. We all see this. And there's just the question that I would have for, for Gavin with this to, you know, um, bring it all back is uh, I, I, I'm going to presume that you grant that because I, I, I think it's reasonable. The question is recognizing that particularly in technology, there is this tendency toward winner takes all. And if we presume those who have uh, unfair or unreasonable advantages, whether we're talking legal or, as you say, illegal, uh, because it cuts both ways some ways in, in interesting forms. Um, how do you guard against the natural tendency towards centralization of reward um, when we have, for the first time, sort of just a hand on the string that we hope can help us climb out of the well of this toward a more decentralized or a more uh, distributed um, apportioning power? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is something that can be, this may well be above my pay grade. Um, fair, so fair enough. Power, like, I can't solve what is inherently um, an issue with humanity. Um, True. And, and none of us can. Just to be clear, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. This is just thinking out loud. Um, right. But, like, I, I think, um, so that I, I would say that there are two things that, broadly speaking, um, can reduce the, um, 
can reduce the issues that come with um, individuals having um, having outsized power. One of them is transparency. So I, 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 just to put it that, I don't think that a world where everybody has literally the same amount of power is necessarily a world that we would want to live in. Sure. Right. Uh, the, we in the same way that, like, um, you know, uh, we don't necessarily want to uh, exist in a world where everybody has a vote over what the world should be like. Like, uh, yeah, right. like go governance is a fundamentally we, unsolved problem. Right. We, um, we but I think transparency and I think incorruptibility of, of rules. So if we have. Uh, if the rules are transparent and if we know that they are blanket enforced, then this at least keeps um, those that have more power than others in check. So in my mind, this is really this technology can help in so much as it um, avoids egregious um, corruption of the rules that is only really possible in these very opaque power structures. Um, you know, some of which that you were mentioning earlier in the US government. Fair enough. Edward, Edward, I think you were trying to make a couple points in there and I wasn't quite sure if you were able to get them through. Uh, would you mind restating them? Because I, I, I wasn't sure I heard anything out of your mic. Um, well, Gavin. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, no, no, I, I was just saying um, with uh, Gavin's point, Actually, I think um, he is uh, correct in a certain way. We don't necessarily want everyone to have exactly the same power. Or if we do, uh, we want to encourage coordination and cooperation, joint construction over a, you know, uh, sort of a um, anti-collaborationist model for the whole world. Uh, it's just a question of when we recognize that there are these centralizing forces, right? There, there's these centers of gravity uh, that will naturally come to exist in any competitive space. Um, how do we uh, sort of ensure fairness in a world where people are taking very anti-regulatory positions? Because classically, right, when we're talking about centralized authorities, you've got regulators. Uh, but what happens when the regulators don't act or act corruptly, right? Or we move to a space where we don't have the benefit of them uh, at all. That was the, the question widely. But I think Gavin's made his point, and uh, we're good on that. Great. Um you know, we, we may not have a sensibility of what it looks like in 10 or 20 years um, exactly, but is it fair to say, is it fair to say that it looks potentially better? Is that fair to say? Is there consensus on that? If, if, you know, the world is truly adopting Web3 under, um, under sort of our, our collective imagination of, of what a Web3 adopted world looks like. Is it, is it, are we agreed on that? So for me, for my part, I certainly wouldn't be spending my life, you know, uh, 14 hours a day every day doing this if I didn't think it was going to okay, be an okay, overall okay, okay. Uh, positive thing for the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a good thing for the world if we make it so. And, and that's really my point. For, for everybody out there who uses these networks or who's interested in this or who thinks there's going to be an impact or is threatened by it, um, the only way things change is if you make them change. Like Gavin says, his 14 hours a day, you know, that, that counts for something. That is a measure of influence. Uh, we all have influence. 
whether we apply it, uh, whether it is applied correctly through our efforts, or whether it's sort of stolen from us and manipulated and shaped through these outside parties that are influencing us or our thinking or whatever, uh, that's a battle that we fight every day and we continuously will. Um, when we talk about Web3, um, my one of my primary concerns just beyond the uh, sort of inevitability of the space, um, and I, I think we will see uh, a growing importance here, and I think that can be a tremendously positive force. I am afraid of, as always, uh, the corruption of privilege uh, that exists within these spaces. And one of the things that concerns me uh, that we haven't really talked about is like the, the NFT-ishness uh, that's around the space. Uh, I'm not against NFTs. I think they can be great. I've seen them used successfully for fundraising. I've used them for fundraising for the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Um, and the generosity of the community is, you know, astounding. Um, at the same time, I see them creeping into gaming in a way that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, but as somebody who's been playing games for a very long time, I'm like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hold up a second. Uh, we used to go to the store, we used to buy a game, you own the game, you play the game, that's it, right? Uh, then you've got the subscription model of games where you've got a massively multiplayer game or something like that. And uh, you buy the game and then you pay a monthly fee or something like that. Now we have people that are trying to uh, sort of, maybe they're not even trying to, but the ultimate result of what they're doing is they are injecting an artificial sense of scarcity into a post-scarcity domain. And I think that is actually an inherently antisocial urge here. Um, if you think about the world that people are retreating from, from their games, right? Uh, where they live in a cold, bare box, if they're lucky enough to even have a home, um, in some overly expensive city. Uh, they spend all their time working. They get home exhausted. You know, they make their uh, cheap meal, and then they turn on their device uh, to escape from all that. And then, in their digital world, where they're on a beautiful island, they build a beautiful home, right? Uh, and they want to change the color of the wall, and you got to pay $19.99 for the wall or for a token that will let you roll for the potential to maybe recolor your wall. There is something horrible and heinous and tragic in that uh, to me. Not everyone does that, and I'm not saying it has to do that, but I think mm. the community should very much uh, be, be trying to bend the arc of development away from injecting artificial, unnecessary scarcity uh, entirely for the benefit of some investor class uh, into these, these post-scarcity domains. Because one of the promises, one of the privileges of technology is that it frees us from material limits that only exist in a material space. Uh, to try to reimpose a material limit in an immaterial space, uh, I think is a little bit unethical, uh, but that's me personally. Gavin, what um, uh, say you to that? Um, I, I would actually ask a quick question. If suppose it were not for the benefit of the you know initial investors or whatever the stakeholders, but suppose that it were just done in some sort of some fashion um, that uh, uh, that didn't actually inherently benefit any individual, just that scarcity was was just part of the technology. Do you think that alters the equation a bit? I, I think, of course, it does, but it, it's still on the same spectrum, right? Uh, so there is a question here of what is it that's being scarce, right? Uh, and, and what is, what are we uh, gating? Is it someone's effort, right? Did someone create an artwork? Did someone write a poem? Did someone craft something 
in a game that you know took them 30 hours uh and that's their it represents their 30 hours that is a very different thing that's tokenizing their effort it's tokenizing <laughs> human life really human expression uh, in a certain way and guarding and, and protecting that and allowing them to trade that what they've done there is they've crystallized a property right of an act of creation and then uh permitted a kind of transferability on the other hand is it a random number generator uh, that's just spitting out seed values, or it's a casino lever arm, right, where you're putting in tokens and you're hoping to get in rare and ultra rare or super rare or whatever they call it. You know, um, these are very different things, uh, and, and that's what I'm recognizing. So it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, because like the game is a is a product. Um, so it's a product. It's a digital product. It's, it's not entirely dissimilar to another digital product, which, for example, could be music. So. Suppose you had a, an NFT, and uh, and so and you with your NFT, uh, you have to hold the NFT to be able to play this piece of music. Now, the 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 artist that created that piece of music, um, I mean, I, I I presume that since you've already sort of you know dipped your toes in the NFT thing, selling NFTs for uh, raising uh, raising funds, you would be okay with the artist who created a piece of music um, to sell NFTs of their music. Um, attached to the right to actually listen to this music. Um, but isn't that the same thing as selling um, an artifact within a game if you are the game developer? I think it's a very different thing. Uh, in fact, and we see this in traditional mobile games and like the, there's a Japanese gotcha model is what it's called, um, where it, it, all of these loot box things, I think they're known of uh, more, more generally, where you're not paying for a guaranteed product. You're not paying for a concert ticket. You're not paying for an album. You're paying for the chance, the potential. What they're trying to do is they're trying to sell you um, a chance at something without the promise of something. Uh, and I think that distance is where a lot of exploitation in all of these spaces happen uh, because humans are inherently bad at internalizing statistical chance. Um, and I think the people who develop these systems are quite good at understanding uh, these statistical models. Um, I think if you want to sell a concert ticket, and that's, uh, again, represented as a, a token, uh, whether that is a ticket, whether that is an NFT, uh, that's uh, a different thing than the ca casino lever. Okay, so um, just to clear things up then. Um, let's let's disregard the, the concept like this. I'm, what I'm talking about is effectively like a CD NFT. So like basically a piece like the music cannot be played outside of owning this NFT. So you want to the artist has just linked the NFT to the to the music, right? So there isn't any physical um, element to this, like a concert performance. This is really just the ability to listen to the music. So I suppose the technology existed to allow the artist to restrict those who listen to their music to the owners of the NFT, which the artist would sell in order to fund, I don't know, maybe themselves further, further development for more music. Um, is that okay? <laughs> uh, again, all of these things, I, I think you're trying to create like a binaries uh, where what I'm saying is all of these things exist on a spectrum of goodness, badness, right? Um, and there's there's uh, sort of self-interest and there's altruism. Um, in a world of uh, entire self-interest, right? Uh, everything is cutthroat and uh, you know, uh, winner takes all, but you rule over a, a world of bones and ashes. Um, on the other side, uh, absolute altruism, uh, 
your children uh, starve because you starve because you gave all your food to them and then you died because you starved to death and then they could not produce you know, food for themselves and they died. Uh, there has to be reasonableness uh, somewhere in this spectrum. You have to be careful not to fall too far on either side. Uh, in the uh, sort of example as what you're describing, this is just a re, um, uh, another re-implementation of digital rights management. Uh, which generally does not get me uh, excited. I'm not in love with it. Uh, but I can understand how these things could be applied um, usefully or pro-socially in certain instances. There are other people who would very strongly disagree with me. Um, but uh, all you're effectively talking about there, um, the token is a password, right? We're using the cryptographic properties of cryptocurrencies. <laughs> Um, to basically provide uh, an access right, whether that's a playing right, whether that's a streaming right, whether whatever, um, it's simply a technical measure. Uh, the implementation of it lies somewhere on that uh, spectrum, as I said, but as you said before, maybe uh, that's above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean, I, so um, just to go back to the game, I, I would therefore say, you know, I, I don't have any issue with games developers restricting access to their product. Um, in the same way that you know they already have done for, for decades before and i i see nfts as just like a, you know more agile a more agile way of restricting access to their product and uh i don't know i you know i'm not a big i, I don't think i've gambled you know more than like twice in my life <laughs> but uh i i so i i, I don't know like I don't really uh, have much of an opinion on 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 whether gambling should be a you know or probabilistic you know services should be a um, uh, is a good thing or a bad thing. But like I, I would separate that from the broader concept of like NFTs sure. providing this agile restriction set. Sure. To, to, to be fair, to reiterate on that, I'm not saying uh, all gambling is bad or should be forbidden or, or whatever. People have the right to make their own decisions. At the same time, what I want people to focus on, what I want the community to focus on, are predatory practices, are extractive practices, are exploitative practices. Fundamentally, a violation of the spirit of fairness. That's all I'm saying. I think that that point is well taken. Um, in the spirit of uh, gambling, I was I was trying to I was gambling on interrupting you two uh, legends uh, speaking. So I apologize, um, and uh, and I hope you take that kindly. Um, we are we are in fact over time. Um, we've let this run a bit over time because uh, I think everyone in the group here, certainly you two, are mavericks. So it is on brand that we've run over time, um, and we certainly all wanted to to hear more of you speak. I, I, I would just say I hope that um, I hope that moving forward this idea about NFTs, I, 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 um, if I can chime in on that, I think that identity will play a central role in, in all of this. And if you guys have any final words on um, how identity plays into this, uh, we'll give you three minutes each uh, because we are over time. And I feel like this is a presidential debate or something, uh, but. Uh, but please, since you since you spoke last, uh, or, or I think you spoke last, and, and so Gavin, uh, if you want to take this, please. Um, okay, so very quickly, uh, identity actually came up at one of uh, when when Edward spoke at the Web three um, summit uh, a few years back, um, and I think uh, I don't really want to parrot um, what he said then, but it it it, it did strike a, a chord with me. I think um, identity is something that we do need to be very careful about. Um, uh, it's very much, we want to see services 
in society where there are objective, non-privileged ways uh, of determining who should go, because most services cannot be provided to everyone all the time. So we need objective, non-privileged ways of deciding who should be able to use these services um, uh, and who who is not allowed to use these services simply through, you know, because of because of the service cannot be provided to everybody. And identity is a very um, a very powerful instrument and used incorrectly, it would restrict and it would create privileged um, sets of people that can use services um, that may ultimately be very important services to use um, uh, uh, against the overall um, uh, benefit for society. So I think uh, we there needs to be a, a very broad awareness amongst teams, amongst developers and within the community about uh, how identity should be used in these products that we're building. Thank you, Gavin. Edward? Uh, yeah, I, I think largely, uh, <laughs> I largely were um, in concert there. The one thing that I will uh, sort of extend, um, again, because I think we don't have a lot of people in, in the, the blockchain space who are sort of saying, hey, slow down, be careful on this. Um, Gavin admirably actually uh, is uh, saying, let's be cautious here. Uh, it gets back to that material limit, right? Um, identity is a discriminator. That is the purpose of it, uh, to distinguish one from the other. Uh, discrimination generally uh, in the global space uh, has negative consequences as we see it being applied at scale. As Gavin said, there are really important places where we need to be able to discriminate, you know, uh, one per customer. Um, we don't have enough to go around for this, whether it's a product, whether it's food, whether it's housing, whether it's whatever. Uh, it's again, we need to uh, see where's the connection to fairness. Now, uh, what we don't need is human identity uh, necessarily in this. What we need is that, that sense of, of fairness. Uh, in individual identity versus, um, uh, <laughs> I can't think of the word for it, uh, but validity of access, right? You have yet to be served. You need to be served. There's a limited amount of whatever. There's a material limit uh, to the amount of service that can be provided. And so we want to provide it as fairly as possible if we can't get to everyone, right? Uh, so basically, you, you get your uh, ticket through the turnstile good for one transit. Um, but what I mean by that doesn't need to necessarily be individual or what we need to be careful with is when we start saying it's this person, it's this biometrics, it's this whatever. Um, and that identity uh, begins to become discriminated against, uh, but it is actually valid. They should still have a right to service for this, that, or the other. Uh, people need to be able to change identities. People need to have uh, basically, uh, you know, all of their access cards that are divorced from their physical human discriminated against in many other domains identity from their I need to get water or I will die identity, right? Um, and and I, I think how we tokenize this and crystallize this is, is, is very uh, difficult, and it, it makes me nervous in general. Uh, however, um, we've seen a lot of clever solutions to a lot of uh, uh, difficult problems in the past, uh, and I am very encouraged uh, by the kind of thinking that I see and the inventiveness in this space that I see. Uh, what I want to caution against uh, simply is, uh, 
overconfidence. Oh, we figured this out. And then you get something horrible like WorldCoin, uh, where they build an eyeball catalog. Um, and they don't even realize it. They don't think it's for that. They go, we don't know how we would use it. We don't know how it would be abused. Um, but like they saved a giant database of uh, everybody's eyeball hashes. And then who knows what future use it will be put to because they were simply trying to verify and tokenize humanness, individual humanness. And it's a clever solution to a difficult problem, uh, but it can create greater risks down the road. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you both, uh, Edward and Gavin, um, legends in your own right. Uh, thank you very much for being part of this inaugural DData conference. I hope to uh, rope you guys into a future one um, because uh, I think that it would be extremely worthy in a year from now, two years from now, to revisit some of these topics, to see how far we have come or not um, in Web3 and in our, you know, in society, right, and for the world. So thank you, gentlemen, so, so much uh, for being here. And, uh, you know, my heart, I want to say my heart goes out to you, but it seems to land wrong, but, but my heart goes out to you. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very Thank much. You. It was a yeah. pleasure speaking with you. Okay. I, I really enjoyed it, Gavin. Stay free, everyone. Likewise, Edward. Thanks for listening to the Blockdown podcast. To connect with us on social media, buy tickets for the next Blockdown event, or find out more about EAK Digital, head to the show notes for further information and links to everything. See you next week.